We're so glad that you tuned into our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jacob Thomas, and I'm on the discipleship team here at Rolling Hills. As we've continued in our Engage series, we've been exploring the foundations of the church. In today's message, we'll be in Romans 12 and discovering what true and proper worship really means according to God and His Word. Now, here's Pastor Nick. I just want to say that if you're new to Rolling Hills, this is very new to me. What's up, guys? What's up? Y'all just going to be up here hanging out while we talk for a few minutes? Uh, I hope that you're doing really well. And if you've tracked along with us at any point in the life of this sermon series, it's called the Engage. Um, And it's the way that we engage our own spiritual growth. And we've talked about the idea of what it means to be a part of community and how much an essential portion of our discipleship and our growth is the idea that we want another together. We've talked about the intentional spiritual disciplines that you would engage in life in order to take any next step of growth. We've talked about what it means to live missionally and evangelistically in the world to see other people come to know Jesus. And I just want to say welcome this morning, and then I'm glad that you're here. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before, my name is Nick Allen, and I'm fortunate to get to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. In fact, all locations of Rolling Hills are doing things a little bit differently today in light of the fact that we're talking about worship and what it means to give our lives completely and totally over to God in that way. So in the fifth grade, um, I got a girlfriend. Her name, sorry, Susan, I don't want to be, whatever. Um, we didn't know each other way back then. Her name was Kendria Burton, and uh, I wrote her a note. And so at, at the very top of the note, it really just, it means, I, I cut right to the chase. It just said, will you go with me? I had no idea where I wanted to take her, like, or even what that meant. But that was what you did. It was the 1980s, and some of you weren't around then, but that's okay. This, this is how we rolled. There, those, Joel knows, this is how we rolled those days. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, I wrote in big, huge bubble letters with shading and shadows in the middle of the paper, yes, and I put a box. And then way down at the bottom of the paper in like 7.5 font, I wrote another little box and I said no. And there's a medium-sized maybe in between them, literally hoping she, she passes the note back to me via her friend Arcola and my friend Brandon, and it said yes. And for two weeks, we did not speak until she passed me a note that said, we are breaking up. (laughs) And I had no idea why. And so I asked my friend Brandon, Brandon Barker, Montgomery, Alabama was where we were living at the time, um, to ask her friend Arcola to ask Kendria why in the world we were breaking up. And she said, it's because you didn't talk to me. And I thought, okay, that was literally life lesson number one in the art of relationships. And I was fortunate to have been given it at a very young age. Um, At a much older age, I read a book called The Air I Breathe by a fellow named Louis Giglio. He's a pastor um, and a teacher and a writer, and he's done a lot of great things in the life of worship ministry as a whole. So I read this book called The Air I Breathe, and he poses a bunch of different questions. And he says in the middle of it, which do you prefer? And then he just starts giving a bunch of scenarios that we can all, maybe you can pick the one that you relate to most. He says, which do you prefer, wives? A husband who tells you that he loves you 10 times a day or one who's faithful to you alone, constantly doing things to show that he cares for you. Okay, um, uh, but just regular old significant others. You're not like cross that, th- haven't put a ring on it yet. Okay, so uh, which do you prefer? A significant other who gives you homemade cards with you're the best thing in my life messages or one who respects you, honors you, and doesn't date around on you. Okay, parents, children, here we go. Okay, so parents, moms and dads, which do you prefer? Kids who tell you how much you mean to them or kids who are trustworthy 
caring enough to obey you because they believe that you want their very best. And just friends, like how about just friends in life? Friends, what do you want? Which do you prefer? Those who keep reminding you that you are their best friend in life or those who are there for you when you need them the most, never stabbing you in the back when you're not around. It's a very tough call, but Louis Giglio says this, and I think you and I would all agree, we want both. We want both. I want Susan to tell me that she loves me. She probably wants the same. Um, I want kids who tell me that I'm the best dad in the world. That's awesome. Give me nice birthday messages and Father's Day cards, but who also show me that love um, in the regular way that they live by being obedient to the things that I give them in life. God is absolutely no different. He, He literally writes, he wants both and not either or. He says, for far too long, people have been, look at the metaphor, cheating on God. Somehow thinking that if they just keep telling him that he's great, he'll be content. And those are the songs we sing. Telling God how awesome he is. Telling him how amazing he is. Telling him that we know and ascribe worth to him with the things that we say. Whether our words are genuine, this is what Giglio says, it doesn't seem to matter. Whether their lives back up their words is no big deal. After all, words come so easily. Saying and singing them makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves, but God is not honored by words alone. Like any of us, he's moved by words that are authenticated by actions. And when it comes to worship, it's the total package that matters. What you say, how you say it, and whether or not you mean it. Our words mean the very most when they're authenticated by actions and amplified in every single area of our lives. For our worship to be real, it means that our attention and our affections have to match one another. This morning, if you have in your Bibles, we're zeroing in on one really clear passage as it comes to the idea of worship. We're focusing in on Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, and it says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so we know at the beginning, it's in your notes this morning, for somebody likes to fill in blanks and jot along or put it on the app so you can remember things later. Like what we understand is that worship is our proper response, but it's not an automatic one. That, what we understand is, what's the therefore, therefore? Anytime you see therefore in Scripture, you have to ask that question. What's it therefore? And for us to understand why Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says therefore, we have to go back to chapter 11, and maybe the tail end of that will give us a clue. It's, it's what Scripture calls for us uh, a doxology, a passage of worship, and it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and paths beyond tracing out. Who has known, we're quoting the Old Testament, the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever given God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things. That's a definition of worship. From him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
And, and so what we get in this therefore passage, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, in view of his goodness, in view of his grandeur, in response to who he is and what he's done, may we be urged to worship. And if we have to be urged, we have to understand that it's not our automatic inclination. It's not the thing that we do naturally. Worship is certainly something that we're doing all day, every single day in life, giving our attention and our affection to something. But the idea that that be God and God alone doesn't come natural to us. It's this idea that we need to be urged. We need to be reminded. That word literally means to be admonished, extorted, begged, entreated, beseeched, consoled, and even instructed to give our worship to God. In the book, Louis Giglio defines the idea of worship. I love it. I love the way that it's written, and I understand this for my own life and hope you do for yours, as worship is our response. We think it's just songs that we sing or a particular type of music that it is. Worship is our response, both personal, that's you on your own, but also corporate, that's us together to God for who he is and what he has done expressed in and by the things we say and the way that we live. And if you want to keep continuing on further in the idea of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we also know that worship without a price really isn't worship. Plain and simple, this whole idea is, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to what? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Sacrifice is the word thuo, and I don't think we understand the fullness of what it is. It literally means to kill, to slaughter. I don't think we understand what the word sacrifice really is, because it's not a sacrifice to give God a portion of what we have. It's a sacrifice to give God all of who we are, and it ought to cost us something. Scripture is really clear. We get David, this key worshiper in the Old Testament, and this pattern in his life, and he was the king over all Israel. And so he goes to buy a threshing floor, and he knows that he needs to bring a sacrifice and to, to worship and, and really make amends for the sin in his own life before God. And so this servant was clearly going to give him, after all, he's the king, you can just take the field, my king. And, and David replies to him in 2 Samuel chapter 24, the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not, it's a famous line, we quote it, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. Worship that doesn't cost us something, worship that isn't attached to a sacrifice that we make, probably isn't worship. How easy is it to stand and sing in these places? But is it really worship? What does it really cost us? If you continue in Romans chapter 12, you understand that ultimately transformation is the key ingredient and the ultimate result. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Psalm 51, David writes it in response to his own sin in life. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Samuel Rutherford writes, seek a broken heart for sin, for without it there is no meeting with Christ. Without a brokenness over our sin in life and who we need to transform from being, then we don't quite understand the thing that God wants to do in our lives. For, for worship to be real and authentic in our lives, it has to have a cost. It has to have a price. It does involve sacrifice, and it will always be 
The idea that you and I are being transformed, worship should change us. It's the key ingredient and the ultimate result in our lives. Our our deepest and most passionate worship has to come from the most broken places in our lives. And as Joel and the other worship leaders from our, our campuses were getting together to plan this worship service, he penned the idea of the way that we set up this next song, a really familiar one that we'll sing together. He wrote, he said, as we begin to see the depth of our own sin, we can begin to understand just how very much God loves us, not because we deserve it, because there's a million reasons that we don't, but that's what makes grace so amazing. Years before he became a pastor, John Newton was a slave trader. For, for years, he served as the first mate and ultimately the captain on multiple slave trading voyages to the West Indies and to North Africa. And even in his retirement, he continued to give money and to invest in slave operations for years. But as time went on and he converted to Christ and he became a pastor himself, he saw just how clearly evil that industry was and how vile his own active participation in it was. And he was plagued by regret. He wrote, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. He thought that his confession and that his repentance came too late. In the movement in Great Britain to abolish slavery, he was a friend and an ally of William Wilberforce who who led that flight. And in 1772, 20 years after his retirement from the slave trade, Newton, along with another poet, penned the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The whole song changes when you know the context of the wretchedness that he believed he was saved from. They're a reminder that when sin abounds, grace abounds much more. When you and I understand the depth of our wretchedness, it's only then that we can understand the beauty of God's love for us. So let's stand and sing together. That saved a wretch like me I once was lost But now I'm found Was blind But now I see grace that taught my heart to fear and raised my fears redeemed how precious did that grace 
know the idea that we sing these songs to God about God telling him how great we think he is and how awesome we understand his gifts to be really is a learned behavior over time. It's common in the life of not just this church, but every church. This idea that we would come and we would sing songs to God about God expressing the worth that only God has. But worship is so much more than just the motions and the rhythms and the engagements of our lives. Isaiah writes in chapter 29, verse 13, it's the Lord speaking. He's saying that these people, they come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. You, you know, as a kid, I, I, I knew the words to some of the songs that we sang in the hymnals. Usually only the first and the second and the fourth stanza. I don't know what the beef was that people had against the third, but I feel like in every single song, we almost never sang those ever. And, and the ones that didn't have a clear chorus that you repeated over and over and over again were the ones that I struggled with the most. But I do remember knowing very clearly when we were supposed to sit and when we were supposed to stand and what we were supposed to say and the words that we were supposed to sing. We didn't have screens back then to look at. We had hymnals and pages that you turn to to understand these are the songs that we sing. And back then, just like now, we called it worship, this idea of singing. We know that one of the songs that we sang in the melody before, the idea of coming back to the heart of worship was born from a a worship writer that's written a lot of the songs that we sing in the life of our church, a fellow named Matt Redman in his church, when the pastor was so clearly convinced that the people were coming near to God with their mouths and that they were honoring him with their lips, but that their hearts were ultimately far from him. He said for an entire season, we're going to go with without music, without instruments, without playing, without technology, and we're going to see where our worship really is. And so at the conclusion of that time, he comes back and he says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you. It's all about you. It is possible to be a believer in Jesus Christ and to come who we think is come to the place that we feel nearest to Jesus Christ and to bring to God motions and moments in our regular habits and weekly lives and yet still remain far from him. It's possible to come here every single week and to stand and to sit and to sing and to not know clearly the God that you're singing about. The worship that we bring has to always be more than just the motions that we go through. It's the attitude of the heart that God is examining in us, and that's what makes worship its own proof. Worship is its own proof. The whole idea behind it is that worship, what leads us to a place when we are, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. I watched the great British bake off. Y'all love how those British people talk. Oh my goodness. And what makes this show particularly different for me is not just the way that the people speak, although I'm just mesmerized by that, or the fact that they're all in a tent and they're amateurs and they're baking and it's a competition and they're being judged every single week, but ultimately how very kind they are. Seriously, watch all eight seasons. They're available on Netflix. And this is what you're going to find as compared with any American reality television show. The contestants are so stinking humble. They literally bring some of the most beautiful things that you've ever seen, and I can only imagine how good they taste. And they're like, oh, it's rubbish. I'm so nervous. What are they going to say? Whereas here in America, we're standing on stages singing out loud and proud, thinking that we are guaranteed a place in the finale. 
knowing good and well we don't deserve it. Like we are, like what in the world is going on? Like the people that are standing on stages, I know I deserve to win. And then you've got the people in great men, I know it's really terrible. And the people are like, this is amazing. You guys, it's the humility that goes into it. Well, I learned a word watching the Great British Baking Show. It was the idea of proving. I didn't know what that was. I'm also not a baker and I don't really ever care to be, but people who make bread understand the idea of proofing or proving. It's when the yeast is given a chance to rise again. You know, you bake your bread, you put it all together, the yeast interacts with the sugar, and there's some sort of chemical reaction that happens. Don't explain it to me later if you understand it, because I don't care that much. But it literally rises in a big bowl, okay? It gets bigger. The dough has got to expand. That's the first proof. Well, in Great Britain, they do a second proof. They literally take it, and they knead it, and they put it into the shape that they want it to be. And sometimes the shapes are really magical. It's not just like braids and plaits, but like somebody composed a lion head out of their bread one day. And once they get it in the shape that they want it to be, then they prove it one more time. They give the yeast a chance to rise and to expand a second time in the shape that they want it to be. Y'all, that's our lives. It's the idea that you and I are shaped and formed into the image of Christ and given a second chance to arrive at what his will is for our lives. The, the word prove in scripture is the dokimazo. And it literally means to test or examine or to scrutinize or to recognize. So the idea from Romans chapter 12 is that we would be urged to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that that is our true and spiritual act of worship, that we're no longer to conform to the patterns of the old way, fit in the old bowl, fit in the old mold, but be shaped into something different, put in a new container, given a new image, given a new identity. And then after that, then we're able to test and prove what God's perfect and pleasing will is for our lives. Do we, do we recognize what God is doing? If we don't recognize what God is doing and we don't understand his will yet for our lives corporately and individually, if we're confused about what pleases him, then it's probably a problem with our worship. Somehow or another, we get to look and examine and to discover the goodness of God's will, but only after we've understood what worshiping him means. That word prove or proof is used again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, in all this, Peter's warning the early church of the calamity and the disaster and the destruction and the difficulties that they will face as a persecuted church. And he's saying, in all of this, in all the difficulty that you face, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He says, these have come so that the proven, the dokimazo, the proven, the tested, the found, the discovered, genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than even gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We will face hard times, difficulties, hardships. And our worship has to be regardless. We are to worship God regardless. Psalm chapter 30, the the psalmist writes, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. It's literally a, a psalm of victory saying, thank you, God, for what you've done. Sometimes we worship God for the rescue. Worship is our response to God both personal and corporate, to who God is and what he has done. Sometimes we worship in light of the rescue, 
But sometimes we worship in light of the lack. <laughs> because the Old Testament writer also gives us Habakkuk chapter 3. It says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, to, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. <laughs> Worship is our response, both personal and corporate to God, for, for who He is and what He's done or what He hasn't done and what he is yet to do. We, we worship God regardless, regardless of the rescue and regardless of the difficulty. And sometimes we worship God because of the difficulty to tell him that we know he can be trusted no matter what. And the reason that we worship God in that way is because we recognize that worship is our dependence on God. Ecclesiastes chapter seven says, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. Your good days and your bad days, God made both. <laughs> Therefore, no one can discover, that literally means describe or define anything about their own future. It's because we have to be dependent on God. You and I don't get to order our days and number our steps. We literally have to depend on Him. And we worship regardless because worship is an illustration of our dependence. In a moment, we'll, we'll sing the song, Raise a Hallelujah, and there's one line in it that is so clear to me. It says, I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm. So, so what's your storm? What's your difficulty? What's your calamity? Because you are invited to worship God in that as much as you are invited to worship God in response to the rescue that he's given you in life, the freedom that you've been entrusted from your sin. It says, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm, not at the end of it once it's all over and God rescued. I'm going to sing in the middle of it where I don't know that the rescue is clearly coming louder and louder. You're going to hear my praises roar. Yesterday, I learned the definition, the difference between eulogy and elegy. I didn't even know elegy was a word. You're like, who is my pastor that he did not understand that word? I literally read the word elegy in an article about 9-11 from the Washington Post. It said that much of the events surrounding yesterday were an elegy, and I was like, oh, pause this article. Let me go look up that word real fast. And it literally means a poem of shared lament. It's sorrowful and melancholy. I was like, well, how does that differ from a eulogy? And so I looked that up, and a eulogy is literally supposed to be a declaration of celebration about the life of someone that we've lost. So a eulogy is supposed to celebrate how good they were and how much you miss them. An elegy is literally supposed to communicate how sad and sorrowful and mournful you are. The, the article from the Post said this, at the site of Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 crashed, the hijackers' apparent plans to attack the U.S. Capitol foiled by a rebellion among passengers, which we know was the story of that day. Relatives of those who died questioned whether or not our country had gone off course. A brother named Gordon Felt, um, whose brother Edward was a passenger on the doomed flight, asked this question, are we worthy of their sacrifice? Do we as individuals, communities, and a country conduct ourselves in a manner that would make those that sacrificed so much and fought so hard proud of who we've become? Speaking just a few minutes later about 9-11, our, our then-president, George W. Bush, seems to offer an answer. 
Here's what he said. On the day that America was attacked and in the immediate aftermath, the country was unified. But increasingly, America's menaced not only by foreign dangers, but by violence that gathers from within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremism at home. But in their own disdain for pluralism, in their own disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. Our words and our actions must match our affections. There are great and there are grave threats to that from without. This, this world and the enemy that we're surrounded by does not want you to present your act of worship to God, does not want you to make a sacrifice of who you are for him. But it's not just the threat without, it's the threat within that seems to damage the things that we give to God. So, so name your storm, name your difficulty, name your calamity, but do not allow it to shrink your voice. Allow it only to magnify your worship for who God is and what he's done and what you believe to be true about him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day, the chance to be in this place and to sing songs about you and to you and for you because we know who you are, we know what you've done, and we know what we so desperately need from you. It's your son, Jesus, and it's his name, that we take today when we pray. Amen. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah.
See, sometimes we have those moments in the service, the first hour, which you guys are here for, that make me so glad that we have another service because I'm going to get to sing that with them again in a few minutes. Um, And you can stay and do it with me if you'd like. Um, The the big question this week is regarding your worship, um, is what is your response to God? Um, Tomorrow, the next day, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, what's your response to God? The, the, the attitude and the affection of your heart and the attention that you give to him in life. What sacrifice will you make? What shape will your life take? What motions are you going to abandon so that it's not just the same routine, but instead an opportunity to refocus all of your heart and all of your desire and all of your everything on the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? And what calamity is going to befall you this week? Like what disaster is pending? Maybe it's something you can see coming down the pipe or maybe it's something that's going to completely blindside you. Whatever it is, your worship of God is to be worship of him regardless. I'm looking over here to the right because I need to learn that. I need to learn that when surprises come and when difficulties happen. I need to learn it and be reminded over and over again that my worship is to be regardless because my worship is an expression of dependence on God. He can be trusted. He can be depended on. This morning when you came in and you received a worship guide and an opportunity to know the things that are happening in the life of our church and the opportunity to fill in blanks on the back so that you can follow along, it should have been accompanied by a post-it note that asks you a question, which basically says, this is the worship that I'll bring this week. This is what I will offer to God, that which costs me, that, that which is me, everything I have, I will bring to him in this way. Is that your true and proper worship? And is the way that you live not being conformed to the patterns and the challenges in this world, the threats from without, but instead focusing on the Christ within? What are the ways that you're going to offer him praise this week? At this time, I'd like to invite our ushers to come forward. Um, And this, as much as any song that we sang and as much as any passage that we read is a continuation of our worship, we say that often. The folks who call Rolling Hills Community Church, this Nashville campus, their church home, they they can contribute financially to the life of this church and and make our our ministries to preschool and children and students and our local missions and even turning the light bills on. Like all the things that we do as a body are, are made possible through not the generous donations of, but the acts of worship from people who call this place home. Again, if this is your first time here, we really just want that connection card. Um, It's our chance to get to know you and to follow up with you and tell you more about the life of our church and from all of us. You know, writing down that prayer request is an act of worship. Dropping it in a basket, trusting that scripture is real and right and true and that when we are prayed for and lifted up and when we bring our request to God, he is faithful and he hears us and he responds in whatever way he sees as best for us. Writing it down is worship. Dropping it in a basket is worship. Lifting it up faithfully over and over and over again, knowing that God has the answer you need, that's worship. And and so this time, as much as any other, is the way that we tell God that we trust him, that we love him, and that there's no one else above him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for the ways that you continue to move in the life of our church and the life of its people. Father, we bring our our worship to you today, our our, our songs, our attention, our affection, our gifts, our resources, our ideas, everything that we have, we bring it to you today. 
sacrificially and also completely to tell you that we need you and only you. Father, we pray that you would grow our body deep in our faith and deep in our understanding of who you are. Father, we pray that you would grow our body wide out into this world to attract all kinds of people who are distant and who are far and who do not yet know that there is a great God in heaven that can be trusted. Father, would you grow us individually as your trusted, faithful followers? But then would you grow us collectively as your body here on earth to represent Jesus in all that we say and do because we love him and we want to help other people know him too. It's in that holy and precious perfect name that we pray today. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We are so thankful for you.